What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on? First, we're asking everyone to subscribe at the start of the podcast, so please subscribe if you've still got your phone out. If not, pick it up and uh, hit the subscribe button, share it with your friends, and that's the last commercial interruption for the rest of the podcast. What's really going on is the Ukrainians are fighting for their lives, and President Zelensky delivered an impassioned speech basically saying to the Americans, he's saying to the West, but really speaking to Washington, saying, either set up a no-fly zone or give us the planes to do it ourselves. And the answer seems to be no. Secretary Blinken went on the Sunday shows this weekend and said, we have a green light. Anybody wants to give the planes can give them, but no planes are going. So for people who aren't following this, there are 70 MiG fighters in the arsenal of NATO countries, mostly Eastern European NATO allies who joined, who had them from the Soviet era, that are perfect for the Ukrainian because the Ukrainian Air Force knows how to fly them, has experience with them. And they've asked for these planes. We heard that they were going. Then we heard that they were not going because of American opposition. So planes are not going to Ukraine. Right. Every day that goes by that the planes are not in Ukraine, people are dying from cluster bombs, from Russians targeting hospitals, orphanages, civilian neighborhoods. This is intolerable that we're not getting these planes to the Ukrainians. So one of the things that I think a lot of us have felt really good about over the last 12, 13 days in which the Ukrainians have been fighting their Russian invaders is the solidarity of the West, right? All those flags, all those beautiful renditions of the Ukrainian national anthem, all of us knowing how to say Slava Ukraini. I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly. And yet, when I see at the State of the Union all of these members of Congress with the blue and the yellow ribbon on, it's just symbolism. That's really nice for the Ukrainians. But what would really be nice is substantive support. And what we've seen is typical in foreign policy, which is that the seriousness of our response is a lagging indicator of the seriousness of the challenge that threatens us. In other words, when Putin was threatening, we couldn't step up. Once Putin invaded, we stepped up, but we didn't step up enough. Once Putin started indiscriminately shelling and murdering Ukrainians, violating ceasefires and humanitarian corridors to kill people as they ran to escape, we stepped up a little more. And I'm impressed that the Europeans have done an about-face on defense issues. I'm impressed that the Biden administration is deigning to consider the possibility, maybe somehow, that we might not actually import half a million barrels of Russian oil every single day. But the reality is that if you don't want to fight a fight yourselves, you need to equip the guys who are going to fight it instead. And we're just not doing any of that. So here's an AP report from late last week. This is a quote, a classified directive from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, and this is at the start of the war, set limits on how quickly some tactical intelligence, the kind that shapes minute-to-minute -minute battle decisions, could be shared with Ukrainian officials. The directive limited sharing details about specific locations of potential targets. So we have not been providing them with tactical intelligence that they can use to target 
we've certainly given them intelligence on like the plots to kill Zelensky and other things like that. And we're sharing intelligence with it. But we're holding back. We are not providing them with tactical targeting intelligence on Russia. Why? Because they're afraid it'll make us a co-belligerent under international law. I'm sorry, Mark. First of all, you know my husband is a lawyer. You yeah. know my husband was the deputy legal advisor to the National Security Council. He and I have been and talking about And we like him this. anyway. And we like him anyway. It's true. <laughs> it's true. Notwithstanding that fact, he's really a good person. But what he rightly said about this, because every morning when we walk the dogs... The legal term, I think, is bullshit. No, what he said is something actually more pernicious, something more, honestly, more disgraceful on the part of the administration. They are going to their lawyers and saying, we don't want to do this what is our excuse? They are hiding behind legalisms. Remember, when you are a lawyer in the White House, the president is your client. I don't know many lawyers who tell their clients, no, 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 you can't do that. What they do is they say, we'll find you a way that you can do that. Now, these guys are saying, no, you can't do that. And the reason is because Joe Biden and his national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, don't want to do this. Did I leave out Ron Klain? Oops, Ron Klain, the president in waiting. Yes, exactly. Look, the excuse is always it's going to make they're terrified of being made co-belligerents in the war. I'm sorry, we're sending Stinger missiles that are shooting down Russian aircraft. That ship has sailed if you're worried about legalisms. And the reality is, look, we do covert operations all the time that violate international law. We were providing targeting information to the Afghans in the 1980s when they were using Stinger missiles to shoot down the exact same Russian airframes that are in Ukraine right now. And it's the same thing with the planes, that we and some of these NATO allies are worried that if we give those planes and they take off from Polish air bases and fly to Ukraine, that all of a sudden the Russians will use that as an excuse to say, you're now a co-belligerent in the war. Here's what the Latvian defense minister said about this in the Wall Street Journal this week. He said, we have to do it about the planes. We must assist the country to defend itself. If Moscow or the Kremlin would like to fight a war against NATO or Europe, they can always find a reason. That's exactly right. The you notion know, that we're giving them a Casaspella is, exactly. is as you absurd. said. Bullshit. It's the same thing. It's the it's same bullshit. kind of argument as, well, it was the NATO expansion that caused Putin to do this. No, what caused Putin to do this is that he is an expansionist who wants to reconstitute the Soviet Union. And he explained this all in a letter. And go ahead and read it if you want to know a reason why he's doing this. I understand why we're not setting up a no-fly zone because then there is a real possibility that American fighter jets could get into a dogfight with a Russian fighter jet and all of a sudden, okay, now that's a war. I get that. Short of American pilots and American troops on the ground, there should be nothing that's off the table in terms of helping the Ukrainians. We should be giving them Stinger missiles. We should be giving them MiG fighters. We should be giving them tactical intelligence in real time that they can use to target the Russians. And this is what Michael McFaul, who is Obama's ambassador to Moscow, is a really smart guy. And he said something interesting. He said that Biden should be doing everything, including the oil sanctions, including the gas sanctions, including everything. And he seems to be holding back because he's worried about the political repercussions. What will the political repercussions be for Biden of losing Ukraine? That's what he should be worried about. Did he miss what happened in Afghanistan with that disastrous withdrawal? If he's really concerned about politics, which is what seems to be driving all this, then you should be more concerned with losing Ukraine than with driving up the cost of gas by another 50 cents. Or if Russia's coming up with some pretext because we gave them tactical targeting information instead of stuff that was a little bit late. I mean, this is just, this is... It's, it's excuse making. It's, 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 it's excuse making. Exactly. And the problem is that, look, this is the same topic that we've talked about again and again and again. It always comes back to this. Joe Biden has made a decision for whatever reason that it is okay to project weakness internationally. 
it is as if he doesn't understand what the implications are in China, doesn't understand what the implications are elsewhere, doesn't understand that this is going to reverberate, that the threats to us are only going to... not as if. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That's true. But that they're going to proliferate. And this is, I think, the problem for us. But I mean, it all comes down to a basic simple fact. If we don't help them to defend themselves, then they're either going to lose or we are going to eventually have to do it ourselves. This is what we saw in the Balkans in the 1990s. The Europeans were there. They couldn't step up. They were incapable of managing a crisis literally on their doorstep. And the United States had to actually physically step in. We do not want to have to do that. The Ukrainians are great fighters. Oh, my God, to watch them is something unbelievable. But they're losing lives. They're fending off assassination attempts of their leadership. And civilians and children. I hope nobody missed over the weekend the picture of that mother and her small child who were murdered, murdered in a war crime by the Russians. This is why we need to get it together. And, you know, Mark and I have been focusing a lot on this in our podcast. We did two last week. We're really talking to everybody we can. But at the end of the day, the reason is this isn't just about Ukraine. This is about the global order that we do not want to see altered by dictators like Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping. Here's the thing. The policies keep happening. He keeps getting dragged into them, right? So he didn't want to do swift sanctions, and all of a sudden he got dragged into doing at least some of the swift sanctions. He's hesitating on oil and and gas ban. But guess what? People aren't buying Russian oil and gas because any shipping company is afraid that if I buy a tanker of Russian gas and it's in the middle of the sea and all of a sudden somebody imposes sanctions, then I'm going to be stuck with a tanker of Russian oil that I can't sell. He's hesitating on the MiGs. He's hesitating on the intel sharing. And everything eventually happens because he gets dragged into it and because Zelensky is such a powerful moral voice that when he speaks out and you can see his frustration, he can't bite the hand that feeds him because he needs us so much, but he's coming pretty damn close of saying, I mean, he literally said this weekend, if you don't do this, Ukrainian blood is on your hands. We can only come to the conclusion you want innocent Ukrainians to die. And he's such a moral force that it's forcing the Europeans, it's forcing the Biden administration to do things they don't want to do. Why be forced? You know, if oil and gas sanctions are going to happen anyway, take the credit for leading as opposed to getting dragged into it. I just don't understand putting aside the moral calculus, the strategic calculus. I don't understand the political calculus in this administration. Well, neither do I. And frankly, I'm happy to see the Europeans stepping up. But I worry about what will happen if, in fact, there is a violation of one of the NATO countries' sovereignty and Article 5 is invoked. Will we step up? Will we do what's necessary? So we have the perfect guest to talk about this today, former colleague of ours, Radek Sikorsky. He headed the New Atlantic Initiative at the American Enterprise Institute before he went back to his native Poland to do brilliantly in Polish politics. He was the Minister of Defense. He was the Minister of Foreign Affairs. He was the Marshal of the Same, which is their parliament. He's now a member of the European Parliament and the senior person on their Committee on Foreign Affairs. And a very good friend to us. We were lucky we caught him. The Marshal of the Same is the greatest title. Here's our interview with the Marshal of the Same. Radek, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Good morning. Before your storied career in politics and diplomacy, you were a journalist, a war correspondent, who traveled to Afghanistan in 1985 and delivered the first reports and photographs of U.S. Stinger missiles taking down Soviet aircraft. It seems that in Ukraine today, those same Stinger missiles are targeting the same Russian aircraft that were in Afghanistan in some cases. Is this Putin's Afghanistan? 
It could be. And the Stinger missiles are relevant because they are taking down Russian helicopters and planes. And I would expect that the result will be the same as in Afghanistan, namely that the pilots, out of concern for their own safety, will start flying high. And that means the effectiveness of their bombing will dramatically decrease. Remember, the Russians don't have precision munitions. So they can hit uh, population centers, but uh, it'll be very difficult for them to hit precisely military targets. I want to zoom out a little bit, Radek, but let me just press you on that quick question of precision munitions. They have their own sort of what we call GPS system. They have their own geolocation. How is it even possible that a power like Russia doesn't have precision guided munitions? Well, it looks like uh, much of the propaganda of the last couple of decades about the uh, Russian army has been just that. Putin has exploited our mistakes in places like Syria, and he's exercised his uh, troops in the Zapat exercises and a few others, apparently with elite troops and small numbers. And the bulk of the Russian army seems to be very much post-Soviet and pretty antiquated, which when you think about it is not that surprising because how can you have a modern military on the economy of Italy? Right, especially when so much money is being stolen from the economy by Putin and his cronies. So let me zoom out a minute because this is obviously, you know, you were both defense minister and foreign minister in Poland. This is your neighborhood, your world, you know it well. A lot of discussion has been going on about Putin, what he's thinking, his ambitions. If you had to say right now, what do you think Putin's larger ambitions are? Well, yes, we've been warning Western colleagues about this man for years. In fact, a colleague of ours from AEI reminded me what I said to him and Senator McCain when he visited the American Enterprise Institute in 2003. Van Serchuk told me that he remembers. I said, look, Putin blew up apartment blocks killing 300 of his own compatriots for a propaganda effect in order to justify the Second Chechen War. If he's capable of doing that to his own people, imagine what he might be capable of doing to others. I knew he would go in in July last year when I read that manifesto for the subjugation of Ukraine and when I learned that he ordered all Russian soldiers to read it. Why would you do that unless you were going to invade? We made the same mistake as in the 1930s, some of us. Namely, this man, like the then Chancellor of Germany, was telling us very clearly what he intends to do. We just thought it was too nuts and he can't mean it. Well, both of them did mean it. And so let's just now take Putin at his word. And what he wants to do is to undo the greatest geopolitical tragedy of the 20th century, his words, which is the dissolution of the Soviet Union. He wants to have around Russia a group of vassal states so that he can posture as an equal to the European Union, to the United States and to China. He has made this very plain. And Ukraine, of course, is absolutely key to that effort because Ukraine plus Russia equals the Russian Empire. He must have read some uh, weird Tsarist and Stalinist literature during his isolation in the time of pandemic, 
because his thinking has become even more retrograde than before. Remember, he started well. As prime minister, he published a uh, tract on the modernization of Russia, by which he meant a broad-based modernization. But he's ended up like a traditional Russian autocrat. But, you know, the tradition in Russia is also that uh, when the autocrat uh, launches a war that doesn't go according to plan, there is often a palace coup. Well, we can only hope. Obviously, this war hasn't gone as Putin planned. He expected to be in Kiev by now, and the Ukrainians have put up enormous and courageous resistance. And it looks increasingly possible that they may never take Kiev. And if they do, he's going to be stuck in an insurgency that's going to be sending Russian soldiers home in body bags for many years to come. His failure in Ukraine made the Baltics and Poland safer. Is it less likely now that he uh, he seems to be in no position to take on NATO and to go in and invade those countries? He hasn't lost yet. I mean, Russia must have some reserves and he may yet grind the Ukrainian resistance. But you're right. If the Ukrainian reports of over 10,000 Russian dead anywhere near true, then he has a big problem because Soviet losses in Afghanistan were officially at least 13,000 in 10 years. My hypothesis before the war was that if he loses more than 300 tanks and uh, 100 aircraft, his offensive will grind to a halt. But of course, he could still do a lot of damage. But no, it hasn't made us feel any safer because unfortunately, we've been vindicated in fearing Russia. That's why we were so determined to join NATO. We used our window of opportunity during the strategic pause. And I think NATO now needs to rearm and to counter force with force. You know, the peace dividend is over because the peace is over. So, Radek, okay, the peace is over. We have seen a heartening, and I don't think I can call it any other word, a heartening reversal of the word that comes to my mind is lazy, the lazy accommodationist attitudes of countries like Germany. But there are others in NATO we could list who have not been investing in defense, who have not taken seriously the threat from Russia. And I would add who have single-handedly handed to Putin dominance over the European energy market. My fear is when I look at these problems in this day and age in the 21st century, everybody is like a teenager. They all get bored. Oh, you know, this is obviously dragging out. Maybe he's just bogged down. Maybe we don't need to do it. Maybe we don't need to make these investments because it's going to be hard. Europe is not structured to spend more on defense. It's structured to spend billions, I was about to say bajillions, on social welfare. Are you convinced that we've crossed the Rubicon or not? I think the paradigm has just shifted. And as you've seen, Germany has turned its policy by 180 degrees. Remember, the Germans had it knocked out of them in the 1940s, and the United States essentially ran Germany's security policy and to a large extent foreign policy as well. The Germans got comfortable with having just a trade and industrial policy. And, you know, we've been telling them that this is not good enough, but I think they got it now. 
and we have to help them make the transition. I would say that German rearmament needs to be put firmly in the framework either of NATO or even better of European defense. Because, of course, if they overdo it, then their own neighbors will start to get worried. And as, the, as regards energy, that's a job for the European Union. Remember, the EU started as a coal and steel community. And we are also a uranium union. The Commission buys uranium from mining producing countries on behalf of member states and then distributes the uranium. We could do the same with gas. We are the largest customer by far for Russian gas. And we could prevent Putin from doing this regatta of member states. We could say to him, look, the commission exclusively will negotiate these contracts and the gas becomes property of the EU the moment it crosses the border in the pipeline. Then the routes of delivery become secondary. And then we get energy security, which is to say the surety of supply at a competitive price. And then the paradigm changes. We are very lucky that in this crisis, the United States is not involved in the Far East and was able to take leadership, particularly in this strategic communication of intelligence information. But I can imagine a time when the Chinese execute their plan for Taiwan and the U.S. is unable to come to Europe's assistance. Europe needs to have a plan B and we need to get serious about European defense. So, Radek, President Zelensky today, this morning, posted a very passionate statement about the indiscriminate bombings of civilians and calling again for the West to impose a no-fly zone in Ukraine. I just saw a poll that 74% of Americans, including majorities of Republicans and Democrats, actually support a no-fly zone. America has been hesitant to do that because it could put us in direct conflict with the Russians, obviously. If we don't do a no-fly zone, then at least we should be supplying the Ukrainians the planes to impose a no-fly zone of their own. There are 70 Russian MiGs in the arsenals of our East European allies, including, I think, 30 in Poland. And those haven't been transferred, even though we heard that they were going to be transferred as much as a week ago. What's going on? Why are they not flying over Ukrainian skies right now? I have no privileged knowledge, but the latest here in Washington is that The U.S. is thinking of supplying F-16s to the NATO members so that they can release their MiGs to the Ukrainians. That, I think, would be a good solution. And as far as I know, Poland is ready to do that. The original plan was for the EU to finance the transfer. If a no-fly zone is understood this way, then I think we can do it. The other thing that we could do, we've supplied them stingers, The Germans have promised 500, they haven't arrived yet. But we could supply also something more substantial, because Stingers are a short-range weapon. We've had a dispute with Turkey over their purchase of S-400s from Russia. This is a weapon system that the Ukrainians probably could operate. How about resolving the problem and for Turkey to supply that to Ukraine? And there are other similar systems so that we would deny the sky over Ukraine to uh, the Russian Air Force. But I suspect they will soon start flying anyway, because the Stingers are taking down quite a few of the machines and they are becoming useless. So, Radek, that was an extremely diplomatic 
answer. Not at all the Radek Sikorsky that I remember from back in the day, because one of the things that has really concerned us, again, is yes, it's great the U.S. is sharing intelligence with the Ukrainians, but there's certainly very solid reporting that there's a lot of situational intelligence, up-to-the-minute intelligence, that isn't being shared. Second, on the question of those MiGs in Poland that Mark asked you about, yes, of course, we could backfill with F-16s, that'd be great. But certainly, we've heard that there are a lot more flies in the ointment than you just very elegantly described. Are we wrong? Well, I don't want to criticize a U.S. administration that has, on the whole, done the right thing. The way the White House has communicated the growing threat to Ukraine, that was really important. It helped to defang some of Putin's special operations to find a pretext for the war. It gave the Ukrainians warning. I'm afraid the Ukrainians didn't take the warning sufficiently seriously and mobilized too late. So I think the administration is doing, on the whole, a good job. But imposing a no-fly zone against Russia over Ukraine is not a small matter. You then have to ask yourself, if you support it, you have to ask yourself whether, if there are dogfights over Ukraine between NATO planes and Russian planes, and some of them on either side get destroyed, and this goes to a war between NATO and Russia, are you prepared for that? Because shooting down the aircraft of another nation state is an act of war. So I think Putin is not doing himself any favors by indiscriminately bombing Kharkiv today and other cities like Vinnytsia. And I think a few more bombs like that and next decisions will be made, like on the MiGs, for example. But those are difficult decisions, and they should not be taken lightly. So, Radek, I completely understand what you're saying about a no-fly zone. I myself am not convinced that it's a doable proposition for the reasons you describe. But it's an intenable position to say, we will not impose a no-fly zone, and we will not let Ukraine impose its own no-fly zone by providing them with the aircraft that they could do that with. The idea that we're here now another week since this story broke and the planes still have not been transferred is just unacceptable. It's a betrayal of Ukraine. I don't know if the holdups in Warsaw, if the holdups in Washington or what it is, but you can see the growing frustration that President Zelensky has as innocent Ukrainians are being slaughtered from the air. Ukraine has been attacked without provocation, is a member of the UN and the democracy in good standing. It has the right to defend itself. There are no restrictions whatsoever on selling or donating arms to Ukraine. And this would be a very effective way of helping them. I agree. And I hope that where there's a will, a way will be found. That would be ideal. I mean, that's what we all want. Exit question for me about this. I think you asked the right question, which is one that a lot of us don't want to contend with. The question of whether we are ready for a wider conflict. And the reason that we don't want to contend with it is because it's being used by opponents of defending Ukraine, even with support for weaponry, for money, for refugees. It's being used as an excuse to do less. But of course, the real hard question here is, what are we willing to deter? Are we willing to try to deter a wider war? And if so, are we willing to do what it takes? 
the reality, Radek, is that, and you know this all too well, is that we don't even have a two-war doctrine anymore in America, right? We only have a single-war doctrine. We can't fight Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin at the same time, let alone Xi Jinping, Vladimir Putin, ISIS and Al-Qaeda, and those guys who are obviously smaller fish in the ocean, but still a threat to us. How worried are you about America? And I know this is a difficult question because you're in a little bit of an invidious position working in the European Parliament. But how worried are you about America's ability to actually stand up and contend against a wider war? Well, you don't have a two-war doctrine because you no longer have a two-war capability because you're not as rich by comparison with the rest of the world as you once were. And others have risen and have created uh, a power that would be difficult to match. Briefings from the military committee of the European Union that China is already at parity with you around Taiwan. And within five to ten years, we'll have a local advantage. So the world has changed. But the U.S. still has military second to none by far. The problem has been, I agree with you, in Europe. I was not a great admirer of President Trump, to say the least, and his national security advisor has just confirmed what I knew, that he intended to dissolve NATO, to take the United States out of NATO, which would have been a disaster. But he was right on one thing, namely that Europeans were not spending enough on their own defense. This, I think, will now change. And we will become a more capable partner to the United States, at least in our own neighborhood. Because President Putin has given everyone a good scare. And I think this postmodernist nirvana that some in Europe have lived in has just ended. So exit question from me, Radek. Obviously, we are no longer worried about a Soviet tank invasion across the Fulda Gap. The line of contact has shifted to the east, and it's on your border in Poland. It's on the border of the Baltic states. The Poles tried to get President Trump to station permanent U.S. bases in Poland. There's been talk of the possibility of moving the U.S. European Command to Poland. Should the United States be moving its force posture eastward and having more troops in Poland, more troops in the Baltics? and fewer in Western Europe? Is that the right force posture for the 21st century? Well, look, we've been telling you for 15 years that capabilities should be where the threats are. NATO, and in particular US forces, have largely remained where they were during the Cold War. But there is no threat to Naples. There is no threat to Wiesbaden. There is no threat to the British Isles. The threat is on the eastern flank. And I hope it's now just crystal clear to everyone. And Putin will, at least in this respect, achieve the opposite of what he wanted. He wanted NATO to withdraw from Central Europe. I hope and I'm pretty certain that NATO presence will now be beefed up in Central Europe because he's forced us into a position of greater vigilance. God willing. I always hesitate when I hear predictions that Europe is going to do better because history would suggest otherwise. I guess that in some crazy way, we have a debt of thanks to pay to the Ukrainian people who are taking this suffering and to Putin, who is, as you very nicely said, a man of his word. 
right? Much as Hitler was a man of his word, we just failed to believe that word. So maybe we have them to thank for waking us up. Let's just hope that we are up to the job. We're counting on people like you, Radek, or in the European Parliament, people who are loud voices in favor of abandoning, what did you call it, that great uh, something nirvana? This can still end well in the sense that if Putin falls and we have a democratic transformation in Russia, then post-Putin Russia could become an interesting partner in balancing the rising power of China. I know we said exit question, but let me press you on that because that's fascinating. The polls show that the majority of Russians support Putin. And they've obviously cracked down heavily on any protests whatsoever. They just passed a law saying that anyone who reports news contrary to what the Kremlin says is violating the law and can be arrested. So news organizations can't do their jobs. What do you think the chances are that Putin could fall over this? And is there really a more opposition to Putin in the Russian society than tends to be reported? It's true that imperialism and imperialist attitudes have deep roots in Russian society, because they've had it drummed into them under the Tsars, under the commissars, now in the schools and on state-controlled media in Russia. But I would be still very careful about treating seriously opinion polls in Russia. You know, imagine, Mark, that you are Mr. Petrov and you are walking down the street in Moscow or someone calls you on your cell phone and says, Mr. Petrov, do you support our commander-in-chief, President Putin? What do you say? I love him. (laughs) Well, it's like the famous joke that Ronald Reagan told where he said uh, Soviet and Russian are debating about democracy and the Americans as well. I can walk into the Oval Office and tell Ronald Reagan, I don't like the way Mikhail Gorbachev is running his country. And the Russians said, well, I can do that too. I can walk into the Kremlin and say to Mr. Gorbachev, I don't like the way Ronald Reagan is running his country. Well, um, (laughs) another joke that I think is even more relevant ran like this. What is a secure border of the Soviet Union? secure border of the Soviet Union is a border that has Soviet soldiers on both sides of it. That's exactly where we don't want to be. God help us. Radek, thank you for taking the time, as always, and for your insight. Keep socking it to them. Keep up the good fight. We are, and I mean this, we're counting on you. Thanks. Goodbye. Take care. So, Danny, what did you take from that conversation? First of all, Rolik knows Putin and knows the Russians extremely well. And I'm really eager to also agree with him and give him credit for his assertion that it is necessary and that Europe will step up in order to take charge of its own defense because the United States can't chew gum and walk. The only problem is I'm not as optimistic as he is that the Europeans can exactly step up. And what I said to him is true. Even if they wanted to, in their heart of hearts, even if their determination was real and didn't fade, even if the guns stopped blazing in Ukraine, the problem is that European economies are now set up in such a way that finding that cash is going to be almost impossible. Yeah. Look, the United States has always been the leader of the NATO alliance. And if we don't lead, we should not be expecting that if we lead from behind, that Europe will lead, right? 
we're the indispensable nation for a reason. If we don't increase our own defense spending, if we don't lead the confrontation of threats like these, then no one's going to. And this whole enthusiasm for as soon as the Ukraine situation dissipates in some way, one way or another, either the Russians drag themselves out in ignominious defeat or it bogs down into a, an insurgency. and sort or, of, or someone overthrows or, Putin, or, or, as, or as Roddick said, whatever. which would be really incredible outcome. It would be an incredible outcome. Then the Europeans will just go back to what they're doing normally, which is spending money on social welfare. Well, but structurally, I do think it's important to understand that if you have a cradle-to-grave welfare state, if you have people who don't work, if you have 12% unemployment as a matter of course, as they do in a lot of European countries, and you're paying these people to live, and you have tons of 40-year-olds who've just never had a job in their lives, the notion that you're going to turn around and say, hey, Javier, it's really been great supporting you for the last 30 years, but we have to have a European national defense now, and I can't support you anymore. That's just not going to be, it's, it's, not, gonna, it's not a thing. And then the other thing is that a lot of European military spending, because some of them have conscript forces, it becomes a jobs program, right? You don't just have to increase your defense spending. You have to increase it and spend it on capabilities. And I just have very low confidence that the Europeans will do that. But I want to pick up on something else that Roddick said, which I think is interesting, which is that he knew in July that this was happening when Putin issued this letter and said what he was planning to do and made every Russian soldier read it, right? And the rest of the world didn't know what Putin was going to do and spent a lot of time convincing itself that Putin was not going to do this. Roddick mentioned there had been a gentleman from Austria, a failed Austrian painter who wrote a book explaining <laughs> what he wanted to do. For those of you who aren't paying close attention to Marx's illusion, he means Adolf Hitler. Exactly. And we didn't take him seriously and the world paid a terrible price for that. I would go further, which is to say that Osama bin Laden published a fatwa against the United States in which he declared war on us and expressed his intention to attack us here at home. And we didn't listen to him and he followed through. I would also say that if you read the speeches of Xi Jinping, he has said very clearly what he intends to do. They intend to take Taiwan back by force and it's going to happen. We have to start taking the enemies of freedom seriously when they say what they're going to do. It goes back to, you know, we didn't take Lenin seriously when he published his manifesto, What is to be done? And said that he was going to create a communist revolution and overthrow the czars. Every example in history where we've had these horrible catastrophes, it's always happened because we didn't take them seriously and didn't Oh, and because our work. intelligence community also told us that it wasn't true, that it wasn't going to happen, that it wasn't the way it was going to be. I mean, another amazing thing, and Radek commented on this, another amazing thing is, of course, that the Russians have a military that can't perform, which is, again, that's not what we've been told. We've been told these guys are really good. We can't go up in the air and create a no-fly zone over Syria because, ooh, the Russians, the Russians. And yet they still don't have air dominance over Ukraine. And this is really the world that we have ended up in, is that still, after Mein Kampf, still after all of Putin's speeches, still after he acted on it, we are still sort of doubting whether he has intentions of going further than Ukraine. And the answer, I think, is absolutely. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not the next day, but at a moment of great opportunity, for sure. Because as you rightly said, as Roddick said, he wants to reconstitute great imperial Russia, the Soviet Union. But this is not just our interpretation of what he said. It is what he it said. It is what he said, literally. Again, this has happened throughout history. Mein Kampf, go back and read it. You predict everything that happened in the Second World War. 9-11 attacks, go back and read Osama bin Laden's fatwa. He lays it out completely. He declares war in America and says he's going to attack us. It's all there. Now Vladimir Putin has laid out what he was planning to do, and he did it. China has done the same thing. Are we going to pay attention this time? 
are we going to take us seriously before they take action against Taiwan and draw us into a war in the Pacific that we, oh, by the way, we don't have a two-war capability, so we cannot fight both defending NATO and also defending Taiwan at the same time because we just don't have the military capability to do that? Are we going to spend more on our national defense in order to get those capabilities? Jack Keener in our podcast pointed out during the Cold War, we spent 7% of GDP on defense. It's now under three. That's not acceptable in the world that we're entering. But we are also going to have to learn to actually spend more because we've been in the process over the last 20 years of turning into Europe. And we need to stop that process in its tracks and reverse it. In so many ways. In, well, in, in <laughs> so just, many ways. Yeah. Plenty of stuff for us to talk about in future podcasts. Thank you, guys. As always, please don't hesitate to share your suggestions. Please subscribe to the Substack. We put it up on Twitter. We've got all of our show notes and highlights from the transcript. And uh, we love hearing from you. And for those of you who are interested in learning more about how you can help Ukraine, what you can do, what programs are providing assistance to the people, we'll have a link at the bottom of our transcript for you, just as we did in other tragic situations, so that you can do what you can to help. Great story I saw on showing my age watching CBS Sunday morning. Oh, my God, Mark. (laughs) Jose Andres is in Poland and in Ukraine setting up restaurants and feeding everybody in his world kitchen that does so much good around the world, feeding people in conflict and in natural disasters. He's on the ground. He's got chefs doing that. I just gave them some money this weekend when I saw that show. Just like my fellow old people (laughs) watching CBS Sunday morning. Wonderful. Between episodes of uh, Murder, She Wrote. God. (laughs) For the record, I didn't watch that. Thanks for listening. Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 